encourage you to take your Bible and um, go to verse 1. We take a look at this. Paul says, this boasting will do no good. That's the boasting that he was talking about. He was saying, remember, that I don't want to boast, but I'm going to do it in a way that teach you how believers should boast and how they should not boast. He said, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. Now remember in chapter, in the first part of the chapter, he was talking about all of the experiences that he underwent for the service of Christ. Now he's going to move on. He's going to say that these false teachers are boast about everything they did. But he says, as far as quantity was concerned, I can even outshine them in the quantity of service. But I don't boast in that. I boast in the tribulations and the difficulties, the hardships that I had, rather than the successes that I experienced. Now he says, I want to go into another area, not only experiences that can be validated by men, but now I want to go into experiences that only the person who experienced them can share. And he said, even in that area, I outdo the false teachers. He says, this kind of boasting that he was doing, or the false teachers were doing, will not really profit you in itself when it was done the way the false teachers do it. However, Paul says, I am forced to go on doing it at this time if you are in fact going to learn from it the way that I am doing it. He says, I don't want to go on, but I feel I must go on right now, otherwise you won't learn the lesson about boasting that I want to tell you about. So he says, let me tell you now about visions and revelations that I have received from the Lord. Now, notice the text very carefully. It's not revelation and vision. It's revelations and visions. It's in the plural. So Paul is not just talking about one revelation or one vision. He's talking about more than one. And we see the importance of this as we go on. Uh, now remember, visions are things that you see. Revelations are things that you hear or you understand. So Paul is talking about truth from God that he has seen through visions as well as truth that he's received through revelation. Now I'm going to show the importance of this as we go on. Notice it also says from the Lord. Revelations, visions from the Lord. He doesn't say visions and revelations of the Lord. In other words, in this instance, he's not talking about things that he learned concerning God. He's talking about revelations and visions he received from God. He's talking about the source of the visions and the source of the revelations. See, he's going to show, as he did earlier, that sometimes the source of the message of false teachers was not from the Spirit of God, but from demonic spirits. But as far as he is concerned, his visions... His revelations came from the Lord. The source was God himself. He's underlining that fact here now. So he's saying that the source of the visions and revelations is not about the Lord, but rather it's from him. Then he goes on to verses 2 and 3. I was caught up to the third heaven. This is a new living translation. I'll read the King James in a moment. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside of my body. Now, if you have the King James Version, it reads, 
I know a man in Christ. So he's going to the third person now rather than being direct. He is speaking about himself, but he's trying to make a point here about being a man in Christ. In other words, when this event or these events occurred to him, he was totally absorbed by Christ or in Christ. This does not necessarily have to do with the same concept that Paul talks about, about in Christ, in other portions of his teaching. He's talking here about being totally consumed by Jesus Christ in these experiences. In other words, it wasn't him that was bringing them on, it was Christ who was bringing them on him. Fourteen years ago, whether in the body I know not, or whether out of the body I know not, God knoweth, such a one caught up even to the third heaven. That's the King James Version. And notice, as I said, a man in Christ means a man totally immersed in Christ as opposed to being obsessed with himself. This was all Christ doing in my life is what he's saying here. I would belong totally to him, and he was the one who was working in my life during this time. That's why he would be able to say that his glorying in the Lord and not in himself. He's able to say he was glorying in the Lord and not in himself because these visions, these revelations came from God and not from himself. Now, interesting here, the word caught up is the word, Greek word hapatso, which means rapture. This is the same word that is used in Philip's, in, by, when Philip was taken the glory in Acts 8. You remember when Philip was martyred and he said he was caught up? That's the same word used. It's also the same use that, the word that is used in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, where Paul talks about the saints being caught up in the air. So what Paul is actually saying, that he was raptured. He was hapatso into the presence of God. Now, 14 years ago dates the time of these revelations that he's talking about here. These were just a few years after his escape from Damascus. Remember, we ended the discussion this morning about him being let down through a ba over the wall through a basket. Well, these visions and revelations occurred a few years after that. Now, we don't know what these visions and these revelations were. And Paul is going to explain why in a moment. We don't know what they were. There's a lot of people who try to, to speculate. But no matter how much we speculate, we have to come back to the point that we do not know what these revelations were. Now, there are different revelations. I just mentioned one of them concerning the hapazo, the rapture. Paul says that that was something that was especially revealed to him. The truth concerning the Lord's Supper was also something that was specifically revealed to Paul. This was divine revelation specifically directed to Paul. But we don't know which ones he's talking about here. So there's no use trying to speculate, so I won't try it either. Now, the third heaven. Now, we all have our ideas about what this third heaven is. But interestingly, this is the only place this phrase is used in the entire Bible, the third heaven. It's only mentioned here in the New Testament for sure. And really, there's no certainty as to what it means. Many people think they understand. Now, somebody has suggested long ago, and this is what Bible students through the years have latched onto. First, I say the first heaven is the air or atmosphere where the clouds are. That's the first heaven. And then secondly, you have the firmament, which contains the planets, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and so on. And then finally, you have the third heaven, which is supposed to be God's dwelling place. 
And I think that's what most people uh, decided it is, that the third heaven is where God lives. But really, careful study of the text or the word shows that there is really no geographical implication or connotation here with these words, none at all. Because remember this now, the third heaven where God dwells is not a thing of space and physical location. God is immense. That means he is everywhere, all the time, without uh, limitation. He's everywhere, all the time, in all of his fullness. In the book of Acts, he says he does not dwell in houses or anything made with, with hands. God is spirit. God is not a spirit. God is spirit, speaking about his nature, his essence. And he's saying here he cannot be contained in any spatial limitation. To look, so to look for heaven as being a specific location with boundaries, now we have the New Jerusalem and all of that, but we're going to see that's not heaven as we normally understand it. If I, I think we have to do a little bit more study on heaven to get a good understanding of it. Paul here, though, is saying here that uh, God's dwelling place, or implying, really, that God's dwelling place is beyond and above and higher even than the second heavens because he cannot be contained, and so on. Um, so what Paul is trying to emphasize here in this particular point is that he was caught up into a special place where no man has been, no person has been as far as he knew anyway. He's going to explain that in a moment. Remember this, there has never been anything written that carries any greater internal evidence of being the truth that Paul wrote here concerning the third heaven. The visions and revelations referred to occurred more than 14 years after his, um, his conversion. Paul never mentioned these revelations to anyone at any time. Therefore, to talk about we know about what the third heaven is in scripture cannot be true because Paul himself will say he never spoke about it he never told anybody about it no revelation was given to anybody concerning what Paul saw that's what we'll see here in a moment here now the only time Paul mentions this is right here and it has to do with the thorn in the flesh were for this thorn in the flesh he wouldn't mention the third heaven at all because it was such an experience that it could not be expressed, it could not be revealed. We'll see that in a moment as well. And so when he did talk about it here, he describes it very briefly. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't elaborate on it. He just gave it to us to cause us to have all kinds of crazy speculations about it. All right? And we do have that. No details, no elaboration, no exaggeration. He just says the third heaven. All right? Now look at verse, verse 3, verses 3 and 4. But I do know that I was caught up, I was raptured to paradise, and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. Notice that? He can't talk about them. No human is allowed to tell. 
So he had never told it before. He had never expressed it before because he cannot express it and he as a human was not allowed to tell it. Now remember, notice he repeats the either of whether in the body or apart from the body, but I do not. Now, here is where the interesting part comes in. Many Bible scholars say that he repeats this phrase twice because he's not speaking about the same revelation or the same vision. He's talking about two different experiences. In other words, the third heaven and paradise are not the same. We equate the third heavens with paradise because of this passage, but most Bible scholars say that is not true. All right? And we're going to show the reason for that in a moment. Now, that's why we have the plurals visions and revelations rather than vision and revelation because he's talking about two different experiences. In other words, caught up to heaven and caught up to paradise may refer to two different realities or two different experiences by Paul. He's describing two different things here. All right? Um, Here's how one commentator puts it, and let me read this to you just so you can get some idea of what I'm talking about. The word paradise in the New Testament is only found here and in Luke chapter 23 and in Revelation 2.7. If it is true, as has been assumed, that the third heaven is the place of God's dwelling, then remember this. Jesus had not yet ascended to paradise on the day he rose from the dead. For he said to Mary Magdalene, what? Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But yet, what did he say to the thief? He said, today you shall be with me in paradise. So that means paradise was in existence at that particular time. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So in the light of these scriptures, we must set aside the idea that paradise and third heaven are the same place. Because the third heaven, if it refers to the location of God's dwelling, has always been there. But not paradise. You understand what I'm saying? But not paradise. All right? Now, above more than this, we can't say anything. This is what the scripture tells us. Paradise and the third heaven cannot be the same. Because Jesus said paradise was present the day that he died. But of course, the third heaven, home of God, as we make it out to be, has always been there. Some questions, of course, concerning this, we could never be able to answer. And so I leave that where it is. We'll never understand this passage otherwise than in the, in the outline that Paul gives here. It's just speculation, as it were but it's also something that gives us hope and something to look into the scriptures concerning. Notice also, Paul says what he saw and heard cannot be expressed in words. This is something similar to Romans 8 about praying in the spirit, that we cannot utter them in words, but the spirit does it. And he says no human is allowed to tell about these experiences. And Paul the only one who seems to have been caught up into this place, he never said anything about it until now. And all he does is mention the fact that he had experience, but he doesn't explain anything about it at all. And that's where he leaves it. But now, how unlike that is today about people who say that they have visions about heaven. They never come back and says, God told me not to say anything. They get write books. 
they go on the radio and they said everything. In fact, there's a Bahamian who said that God took him on a tour of both heaven and hell. And he came back to write about it. Isn't that amazing? God gave him a greater privilege than he gave to the Apostle Paul. This is why, by the way, I take very lightly these books that people say they experience heaven, they go to heaven, they come back, and they describe all of these things the same way they're on earth, or the same way somebody has talked about it before. There's no difference. In other words, their heaven, what they saw, their realities there are things that they saw on earth as well. So I don't take those things very seriously at all. Because Paul says, God says, you can't write about these things. You cannot even express them in words, so don't even try. But yet we have people who come in and say that they sit down with Jesus, or they go and they have breakfast with him. They know how tall he is, how much he weighs, and all of that kind of a stuff. To me, that's foolishness and the mark of a false teacher. All right? Why would God give man today greater privilege than he gave to the Apostle Paul? He wasn't able to express what he saw in words. Neither uh, was he able to, uh, was supposed to say anything about it at all. Now, notice what he says in the next verse. Again, as I say, this is why I pay little attention to those stories. You know, you always hear about these people who say they have a near-death experience, and they have this experience of going through a tunnel of light, and they come up and they see these people and all kinds of things, and sometimes they don't want to come back, uh, but they do come back and everything else. But notice what Paul says in verse 5. That experience experience of being raptured to the third heaven is worth boasting about. He said it's something that I should boast about. It's, if it's anything that a servant of Christ to validate his authenticity, his genuineness is a vision like that. Don't you think? He says that experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. Now, isn't that quite different from what we have today? But I am going to do it. I will instead boast only about my weaknesses. He's not going to boast about these experiences that causes him to seem to be so great and far apart from anyone else. He's going to boast about his weakness. Paul here says he refused to speak about what he saw and heard. Let me ask you something. Have you heard of anyone who professed to have gone to heaven and come back say that they were told not to talk about it? If they did, of course, they wouldn't be talking about it, would they? But you haven't heard of anyone like that. And something else you're going to see here when it comes to the thorn in the flesh. How many of them have you heard that God gave them a thorn in the flesh to keep them quiet? You don't hear about that. Why only Paul? You see? So what can I say other than what Paul is saying here? He says, I should boast about it, but I am not. I'm not going to boast about those things, although it's something worthy to boast about. Instead, I am going to boast about my weaknesses. Now look at verse 6. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so. In other words, he's saying here, if I wanted to boast about this experience, it, I wouldn't be a fool for doing it because this is a genuine experience. Because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it. Because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. This is an amazing passage of scripture. He says, I could go and claim all kinds of things. 
But how can you prove it whether it's true or false? The only thing you can prove is what you hear me say or what you see me do. And that's why I want to be evaluated. I want to be evaluated on what you hear me say and what you see me do. Not on what I claim to have done. That I saw this or I had lunch or breakfast with Jesus Christ. Or he took me flying around heaven and hell and brought me back and all of that kind of thing. He says, no, 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 no. He says here, um, what you need to look at in evaluating me is not what I claim in visions and revelations, but rather what you hear me say, is it true in keeping with the word of God? What you see me do, is it life integrity and faithfulness to the word of God, true to the, to the teaching of scriptures and so on? That's what Paul is saying here. Now, Paul is implying, of course, that this is exactly what the false teachers were doing. They were lying about the visions and things that they saw. They were not telling the truth. That's Paul's implication here. They were not telling the truth. And he adds, I will not reveal what I have seen and heard. He says, I can't do so anyway. I don't have the words to describe it. Besides, I want to be evaluated on what you can see me do and hear what I say, not upon some vision or revelation that I alone have experienced. Man, this is speaking so clearly to us today for people who make all kinds of claims. Only they experience it. No one else. Well, Paul says, you want to know they tell them the truth? Evaluate their lives. Listen to what they say. Are their teachings in keeping with the word of God? Look at how they live. Is it a life of purity, morality, integrity, and so on? This is Paul is saying a tremendous passage here. This is what one commentator says about it. Paul showed them the absurdity of fancying the whole let me okay. Paul showed them the absurdity of fancying that the whole of a teacher's merit lies in the gratefulness of his person, in the nice arrangement of his words, and the melodious tones with which he pronounced his discourses. In other words, he's saying, you don't judge a person only in how handsome they are, how well they can speak, the kinds of words they use, but look at his life. Look at his life. Look at his teachings. Another commentator said this about this passage, and I want to quote this one. To recount further instances of his visions would be speaking the truth, Paul says, but he refrains so they may judge him, not by his secret private visions, which could be challenged by a hostile man, but by what he had done and what he has said. And we stand on that. We say the same thing. Is not what we claim that we have experienced with Christ that no one can validate or prove. But look at my life. Look at my words. Are they in keeping with Scripture? Then he goes on to verse 7. Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a message from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. That's a powerful passage of scripture here. All right? Paul called them wonderful revelations. Again, it's in the plural. From God. To keep me from becoming proud. So he's saying here, these kinds of revelations can cause a person to become proud. I was given a thorn in my flesh. God does not want his servants to become proud. He was given a thorn in the flesh. 
a messenger from Satan to torment me. Notice that, to torment me. That's something that goes on and on. And to keep me from becoming proud. Now, a lot in here, we can't go through everything. Maybe as you ask questions, we can get it. Note it is a, it is a thorn in the flesh. Again, Paul doesn't say what it is. He does, I wish he had. Because it would save a lot of ink and paper. Because we have people making all kinds of suggestions of what this thorn in the flesh is. For instance, let me give you a few of them. An early uh, church father, Tertullian, said it was a headache. Paul had a migraine. Another one said it was epilepsy. Another real good scholar, Ramsey, said it was malaria fever. Another person said it was all the adversaries of the world, or adversaries of the word. John Calvin said it was fleshly temptations. Martin Luther said it was spiritual temptations. John Knox said it was infirmities of the mind. Most of the Catholic commentators say it it was lustful thoughts, was the thorn in the flesh. Another person said it was acute, disfiguring ophthalmia. That's an inflammation of the eye. A lot of Bible scholars take that position. That's why, for instance, you remember when Paul says at the end of one letter, see how large letters I have written? It's because he had eye trouble and he had to write in big letters. McKnight, this is a recent fellow, he's a, another great philosopher, he says it was the false teachers who were the thorn in his flesh. Now, I think in context it could be applied to that, but really when you get right down to it, we do not know. Lightfoot says that the thorn in the flesh was blasphemous thoughts of the devil. Alexander, another great expositor, says it was, mal it was Malta fever, not malaria, but Malta fever. And so we have all kinds of ideas of what this thorn in the flesh is. I personally believe that God left this uncertain so that all of our suggestions could be right. In other words, whatever it is your besetting sin that causes you to be proud, that's your thorn in the flesh. You see? God did not make it clear so that we could apply this to anything that keeps us from being humble in his sight, all right? Uh, so I put it here. I personally believe God left it uncertain so that we could all be right. The sin that so easily besets us and causes us to become proud could be anything in our lives. Anything that does the job of keeping us from being proud. God uses a tool of Satan. Remember, he calls it a messenger of the devil a messenger from Satan, but at the same time, he said it was God who sent it. God uses a tool of Satan to do his work for him in the believer's life. Satan meant it for evil, but God means it for good. The evil that Satan wanted was to encourage him to boast. The good that God wanted was to prevent him from boasting. Now this brings to mind what? The story of Job. Remember the revelation we have concerning the devil. He comes to accuse the brethren. He appears before God. Now, there's another question. Where did he appear before God? Was it in the third heaven? Was it in the place where God dwelled? Would Satan be able to have access to the very presence of a holy God? You see, I doubt it. 
So I don't think this was in the home, in the place where God dwelt. I believe that there, uh, that there must be other spheres, if you want, of the heavenlies that we do not even know about. And of course, even science is showing that today. That tells us what the universe is expanding, not shrinking as they thought before. It's just expanding and they're finding more and more and more. But anyway, you remember Satan appears before God. And it is God who challenged Satan rather than Satan challenging God to get things going. He says, have you considered my servant Job? Now remember, it seems that Satan gave a report. Satan, where have you been? I've been all over the place, accusing the brethren. What about Job, God says? Have you looked at him? Well, he didn't say he did, but he certainly knew about him, so he probably did. And he says that the only reason why Satan is worshiping you is because of what you're giving him. And remember, God then allowed Satan finally to touch his body. Isn't that right? To make him sick. First he said you couldn't do it. Showing again that God has control over the devil even today. And whatever we see going on in the world, even the pain and the other, is still under the sovereign control of God. It's something difficult for us to understand, but the truth is there nonetheless. And um, God gave him permission to afflict the body of Job. And you know the sickness, terrible sickness. But Job did not lose his faith and trust in God. God was being challenged by Satan to the fact that men only worship you because of what you give them. God says no. Man can also worship me because of who I am, not only because of what I give them. And Job proved that to be true. But he didn't prove it to be true to man on earth. He proved it to be true to whom? The devil and his angels. It was an angelic message. In other words, God used the devil to teach his people a message. I'm sorry, not to teach his people a message, to teach angels a message. And I believe this is what's going on in here with Paul's life as well. God was using Paul as a New Testament Job to demonstrate to the principalities and powers that he could be worshipped for who he is and not for what he gives us. Tremendous truth here. And notice he goes on. He says, Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Three different times. Now, you know, if that was me, I'd be praying all day and all night. And I wouldn't be able to count the times I asked him to take this away. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Now, what does this bring, you to, bring to mind? Jesus in Gethsemane. Now, if we had time, we will trace this experience that Paul is talking and his life and all the sufferings, and you'll see that Paul, in many cases, duplicated the experience of Jesus Christ. And this is a vivid one of them right here. Three times I begged the Lord to take it away. How many times did Jesus ask the Father to take the cup from him? Three times. Each time he said, my grace is sufficient. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. The same thing is true in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed three times for God to remove the cup if it was possible. Three times the Father says, no, he won't do it. Finally, what did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. And that's exactly what Paul is going here. Notice what he says. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses. 
so that the power of Christ can work through me, not only in me, but through me. Paul is saying now he can boast in the fact that this thorn in the flesh which Satan meant to be evil to him is now come a source of blessing to the people of God. And not only that, to glorify God in his life. My grace is all you need. You don't need anything else. My grace is sufficient. My power works best in weakness. Paul is learning a truth that he just taught to the, 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 the Corinthians about. It's when we are the weakest that we can experience the power of God in our lives. And beloved, that is true. When we are our weakest, we cry out to God, don't we, for his enablement. Paul is saying that the same way the Macedonians called upon the grace of God to enable them to give beyond their means, so Paul says he calls upon the grace of God to allow him to deal with this thorn in the flesh so that God would be glorified in his life and he would not become a, a, a proud and boastful servant of God. Tremendous truth here. Maybe we could discuss it as we have some questions in a moment. Now, verse 10. That's why he says, I take pleasure in my weaknesses. When he, goes, when he drew attention on all of the sufferings he went through, the uh, beatings, the whippings, the stonings, being on the sea for three days and so on, he says, I take pleasure in my weaknesses. And in the insults and the hardships and the persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul again is, I think, duplicating the life of Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus says, if you hated me, if they hated me, they'll hate you. He says, blessed are those who will be persecuted for my sake. Isn't that right? Happy are those. And this is what Paul is saying here. He took pleasure in his weakness, in the areas that he could not in any way in himself go through. God enabled him to do it. Insults, hardships, persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now again, I believe that this verse describes Paul's living with the thorn still in his flesh. It wasn't removed. So this verse here actually talks about Paul living with the thorn in his flesh. I take pleasure in that thorn that was sent to me by God via the devil. I took pleasure in that. And notice, there's not a word here about sickness or disease or nearsightedness or anything of its kind. It has to do with injuries, persecutions, and troubles as he's talking about what he received on behalf of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, Paul will continue thorn and everything. In other words, he says, this thorn is still in my flesh. He's going to continue even with the thorn in his flesh, with the humiliation of his personal aspiration and all of that, he's going to continue serving Jesus Christ. Because it's when he is weak, that he is strong. It's when he is persecuted for Christ's sake that he's able to draw upon his power. Furthermore, the testimony now, since the time Paul wrote this up to the present time, shows us that Paul is right. God's grace is sufficient, 
no matter what the problems or difficulties we face. God's grace is sufficient to enable us to overcome it for his glory and our good. No matter how much Satan is involved in it. Amen? All right, let's look at some principles to apply. Number one, the true nature of Christian leadership, because that's what Paul is talking about. We must never forget that when we read this. The true nature of Christian leadership is centered in humility and human weakness, not boastfulness, self-centeredness, and pride in human accomplishments. That's the mark of a true Christian leadership, one who is like Christ. Secondly, our dependence for divine effectiveness in service must always be upon Christ and not ourselves. If we believe that the only way we can do something is if other people help us to do it, then we're leaning on the wrong people to do the work of Christ. You understand what I'm saying? This is the test of, this is where what I call the test of if God isn't in it, then it isn't of God. If God isn't in it, he didn't do it. By that I mean, you, you know, sometimes you go on these radio programs and at the end you hear the people say, we cannot continue unless you send your money in. Is that right? So they're not depending upon God, they're depending upon the people to send the money in. But we must depend upon God. We must be sure that God has room to work in our service of Christ, so what we're doing for Christ. Sometimes we try to do everything. We try to plan everything so perfectly that anybody could do it. We don't need God because we've planned it so well. Paul says, no, 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 that's not the way he does it. He looks for things that he cannot do. So when it's done, he can only boast in God and not in himself. Third, no local body of believers are perfect, not even Calvary Bible Church, nor are their leaders, especially this one. Therefore, let us show mutual respect and honor each one, each other accordingly. In other words, Paul is saying here, let us look at the fact that none of us are perfect. We all need to depend upon the grace of God in our lives. So let us be sure that as members of the body of Christ, we help one another rather than hinder one another through undue criticism, fault finding, and so on. And then finally, God's grace enables us to deal effectively and victoriously with any difficulty he may allow to come our way, no matter what it is, no matter what the source we can draw upon the enabling and grace of God to help us to overcome it. That's what Paul is teaching here. He wants us always to be absolutely dependent upon God and to be sure of this one thing here, that God's grace is sufficient. Amen?